0: And if you will, open up your Bible to Psalm 19. I want to read this psalm in preparation for what we're going to be studying, and then I'll, I'll pray again after we read it. Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So we have in this psalm, obviously, if you you don't know, hopefully you'll learn what appears to be a very quick flip of a switch, a break that makes almost no sense unless you pay attention to what's happening. We have here two means of God's revelation, first in creation and then in His Word, revelation in Scripture. And so our goal tonight as we study the balance of this chapter, this first chapter of our confession, is to learn the ins and outs of those two means of God's revelation. So let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer again, ask Him to bless our time, and then we'll we'll jump in. Father, we do thank You so very much for the opportunity to get together and to open Your Word again and to meet with Your people again. Lord, I thank You for these precious people that they've come out and they have uh, shown by their presence that they desire to hear the Word, and they want to, to know You, and they want to know sound doctrine and sound theology, they want to to learn of you and learn of Christ. They desire to be around God's people. Lord, I pray that you would bless them for that. Bless them in spite of me in in what we're going to study tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, if you want to, you can keep your Bible open there to Psalm 19. By way of recap, just a reminder, we are in Unit 1 of that big, long Outline those, those four main units, I remember I stole from James Renahan, and I'm still trying to put people on James Renahan, go and find him and listen to him. The first unit, which he calls first principles, the foundational theological um, structural patterns found in the Scriptures, chapters 1 through 6, are all those first principles. So we're in that opening unit. We're in the opening chapter of that unit, which is on the Holy Scriptures. And remember, everything in the rest of the unit is found in some form or another in this first chapter. Not in the first paragraph necessarily. Um, It might be in the first paragraph, but at least in the first chapter in seed form, everything we will learn of in chapters 1 through 6 are found in this first chapter. So opening unit... Opening chapter of the unit, and then we're looking at the opening paragraph of that chapter, which I've entitled The Nature of the Holy Scripture. So last week, we looked at the first sentence, which I called The Nature of the Holy Scripture Stated. And I'll read you this from last week, sort of summarizing the whole point. We learn in this first sentence, The Holy Scripture. And only the Holy Scripture is fully sufficient, totally certain, and infallibly correct in determining, explaining, revealing, and instructing in all saving knowledge, saving faith, and saving obedience. In other words, if we want saving knowledge, if we want to know the object of saving faith, if we want to know how to live out saving obedience and we want to go to a place that is completely sufficient, incapable of having any error, and totally certain that we must go to the Holy Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. Now this week, the title of the rest of this paragraph is The Nature of the Holy Scripture Defended. So we have The Nature of the Holy Scripture Stated, and then The Nature of the Holy Scripture Defended. Now let me read to you the the rest of this chapter beginning with the word although. If you have your confessions open. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church... "...against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased." So there again we have the nature of the Holy Scriptures defended. In the first sentence... The, 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 the authors state clearly and succinctly the, in, the objective of the Scriptures, and in the rest of the paragraph, they defend that objective. This paragraph seeks to explain exactly why the Holy Scriptures as a rule is of absolute necessity if you want to labor confidently in the realm of saving knowledge, saving faith, and saving obedience. Now, we we could put it in the form of this question that might come into someone's mind if they were uneducated on this point. They might say, if God has always been in the business of saving a people for His own glory, and we know that in former times, at some point, there were no scriptures, and then later than that, what they did have in a body of writing was less than we have now, then why is it imperative that we have the Scriptures and that we devote ourselves to their study? The Apostle Paul didn't have a Bible like we have. Moses didn't have a Bible like we have. Why do we need the Scriptures that we have? And so the answer to that question is found in the rest of this first paragraph, which deals with both areas of divine revelation that are discussed in Psalm 19, namely, general revelation and special revelation. And so we can divide the rest of this paragraph up into those two main headings, general revelation and special revelation. Now these are very important terms when it comes to just understanding how God has revealed Himself. And so um, I forgot to make mention, I did make a, a sermon guide for this or, or an outline guide for this on the, the YouVersion app. So if you're using that, this stuff is there. General revelation, according to... Um, Mueller's Theological Dictionary of Latin Terms, which he obviously doesn't use the terms general revelation. It's something like uh, revelatio generalis or something Latin sounding. But he he defines it this way. This is general revelation. The general gift of knowledge of God to all people in and through the created order. That's general revelation. And then special revelation is the special gift of saving knowledge in Christ in and through the prophets and the apostles and in and through the teaching or prophetic office of Christ. Now, now let's compare those two ideas. General revelation is a general gift. It is to all people and it is through the created order. That is the things that have been created. While special revelation is a special gift. It's saving knowledge. Not just the knowledge of God, but a saving knowledge. And it comes through the prophets and the apostles and through the teaching or prophetic office of Christ. Now, this is just to see what we've learned in in weeks and months past. Where can we find the teaching and prophetic office of Christ now? It's in and through His the the gifts given to His church, the people in His body on the earth. Christ operates not just through preachers and teachers, but also through those with the gifts of of, uh, exhortation and wisdom and things of that matter, where they use the Word of God to teach God's people. So that's general revelation and special revelation, but that language is not in the confession. You can see the, 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 the authors of the confession didn't just want to say... We need the Bible because there's general revelation and special revelation. They they explain general revelation and special revelation, but it's trying to explain both of those in their respective context in redemptive history. Uh, If you notice, there's the language of adequacy and inadequacy. General revelation does this, yet... It doesn't do this. And then it comes in at the end and says, and special revelation does just that. It does what general revelation cannot do. That's what this paragraph is trying to do. So in light of that apparent intention in the confession, I want to use the following as our two main headings. Not just general revelation, special revelation, but general revelation and its deficiency and then special revelation and its finality. General revelation and its deficiency, and special revelation and its finality. So first, general revelation and its deficiency. Again, the goal of the confession at this point is not just to say there is general revelation. It It starts with general revelation, but it wants to use that to work its way to special revelation. So instead of jumping straight into what is lacking in general revelation, it starts by praising general revelation and then moves to its area of insufficiency. In other words, general revelation is great, but it can't do this, therefore we need something more. That's what's happening. So what then are the benefits of general revelation? It starts in the confession by giving us the benefits or what general revelation does well. Notice, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. So here are the benefits of general revelation. Notice it begins with the word although. The sentence starts out by assuming there's going to be a contrasting truth coming later. In other words, he's saying in spite of the following facts or notwithstanding this truth, there's more. The confession is going to explain something to us under the presumption that what it's about to explain is not the sum total of the point that's trying to be made. So, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence. Now, what is that? The light of nature is not the sun that shines and gives us light of the stars that burn. The light of nature is, is the, the illumination of our natural humanity, that because we are human beings made in the image of God, we have rational faculties within our soul that separate us from the rest of uh, the animal kingdom and the created order. Uh, one thing I often think of in this regard is uh, animals. I had a puppy one time, and I didn't know you weren't supposed to just feed a puppy all you wanted. And so I just would pour out dog food. And it would eat and eat and eat until its belly was swelled out. And it would just lay there until it could finally waddle out into the yard, chew on grass until it vomited everything up. It was eating until it was sick. It was sick. The dog didn't sit and reason. Now, if I eat this much, it's going to make me feel bad. Um, A grown dog. You could throw a grown dog a pile of rotting meat the dog's going to eat it. It's not going to sit and think, you know, there's probably some bacteria growing on this. How long has this been sitting out? It's just going to eat it. All that dog knows is, that smells good in my nose holes and I want it in my mouth hole. That's all the dog knows. It doesn't have a reasoning faculty. But we as human beings have that. We can look and we can reason within our minds and, and weigh options and, and um, discern things. So that's the light of nature that we have as human beings. And then there are the works of creation and providence. Now both of those, if you paid attention, that will come back up in chapters 4 and 5. We're going to go into more detail, but here they are in seed form. The works of creation and providence. That would be everything that God created in six days on the earth and... The fact that He continues to keep all of these things going. He upholds all things by the word of His power, constantly working everything according to the counsel of His will. In all of that, that's the the light of nature within us and the works of creation in providence. So in other words, the work of God being described here is that work which is openly visible for all people to see They can look at it, and then using their creaturely reasoning, they can discern something more than just what's there. We can look at the created realm as it stands and learn some things about God. Now, what are those things? The confession continues that these works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness wisdom and power of God. Now, this is sort of a retelling of the truth that we read in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. In creation, we can see the goodness and the wisdom and the power of God. In Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The heavens and the sky declare and proclaim. They they preach. There's the language of revelation. It's proclaiming something by the incomprehensible expanse of the sky above us. We can learn of God's infinitude. For if He created such an expanse that we can't even measure with all of our technology, then how much bigger must He be to hold it in the palm of His hand? 1 Kings 8, 27, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Isaiah 40, verse 12, He who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span, speaking of God, depths that we cannot fathom, heights that we cannot measure, He holds them in His hand. He measures them with a span. They're nothing to Him. And so we learn of His infinitude and His vastness day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge think about it the constancy day night day night day night month 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 year 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 summer fall winter spring summer fall winter spring from the creation until now without failing without changing or shifting That teaches us of God's eternal faithfulness. Listen to Psalm 119 and verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. It's still here. That shows God's faithfulness. He's keeping it moving all the time. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In other words, nothing in all of creation fails to preach something about God. That's why it's important for us to pay attention and to meditate upon and delight in creation and in the created works. Not to, to stop there, but to move on toward and to the Creator. We continue reading, "...in them He has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. From the light of the sun we can discern God's holiness and His purity. Again, it's been the talk this week. Consider the eclipse, the burning deadliness, the the fierceness blinding potential in that eclipse. You've probably all seen the meme that says, you know, you can't look at it without it blinding, burning your eyeballs out, and yet you think you're going to walk into the presence of its maker? Destroy, you can't even look at the sun. Thomas Manton says this, I thought this was a good quote, The sun is but the black and sooty bottom of a cauldron in regard of God. In other words, that light that we can't even look at because it would burn our eyeballs out and blind us is like the crusty, greasy bottom of a pot compared to the, holy, the holiness and the piercing light of God. Job 26, verse 7, He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Think about it. The air in this room won't even hold up a feather, and yet God holds the earth forever. Since its, since its creation, here we see His omnipotence, His power to uphold not only the earth, but all, every, every planet, every star, every galaxy, every solar system. He upholds it. Think about the animals. Billions of animals and creatures, from animals all the way to insects on the earth, each of them doing their jobs and sustaining their own existence, making their home and staying in their home, in their area with no sense of purpose at all. Lions aren't trying to come to America. Elephants aren't trying to get to Antarctica. They just stay right where they are and just do their job. They're born, they sustain their existence, and they die. Here we can see God's wisdom and God's design in creation. Consider the flowers of the field. They don't work at all. They just sit there and God feeds them with sunlight and water and nutrients from the soil. Here we can see God's providential care of all of His creatures. Consider the billions of people on the earth. Think about it. Billions of people who are on the earth and who have ever lived. Every single one of us having the same general features, even facial features, and yet no two are absolutely indistinguishable. We've all got a nose, two eyes and a mouth and two ears, And yet, every one of us is different. In that, we can see God's creativity. I put all of these things together. The universe, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, human beings, biology... All of these things, all of these categories of study, each of them have their individual members, and each individual member has its own microscopic pieces that form them, and yet none of those individual areas can be searched into with any depth of study in the lifetime of a single human being, and yet God created them all with a word. So here we can see God's infinite perfection in creation from God's works of creation and providence, we can see His goodness and His wisdom and His power as well as His infinitude and His creativity and so on and so forth. So it does all this, the confession says, as to leave men inexcusable. We learn this in Romans 1 verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The Bible does not have the category. God does not recognize atheism. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing. In other words, God doesn't believe in atheists. They may say they don't believe in Him, He doesn't believe in them. So, in conclusion, this is what general revelation does well it reveals to all men, without exception, various aspects of God's nature so that all men know full well that God exists. And knowing this, general revelation leaves all men without an excuse before God. So those are the benefits of general revelation. In the second subheading under this main heading, the deficiency of general revelation. For all of its great benefits, and especially for the saints, the great and mighty wonders of God that it reveals, general revelation is still lacking in the area of most importance, namely... Saving knowledge or salvation. We continue reading in the confession, yet, the confession or the the general revelation does all of these things, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation? General revelation cannot give what is necessary for salvation. Last week we saw there is a knowledge that is necessary for or unto salvation, you must have it. You must know God in a certain way, not just about Him, but know Him. And general revelation does not provide that knowledge for us. Those who only have general revelation do not have this knowledge Without this knowledge, there is no salvation. Therefore, how much more diligent should we be in getting this knowledge to those who don't have it? To those who don't have this saving knowledge. How will they hear without someone preaching? They have to have it. We can't say, well, out in the jungle, and this is this is the Billy Graham answer, they, they look up and they're going to see the trees and the sky and, and, and God will, will judge them based on on what they knew. God will, he will, he will have mercy on them based on what they, they could see. He will judge them based on what they knew. They knew of His, His divine nature and eternal power and they didn't cling to Him and run to Him for salvation in Christ and therefore they are without excuse. So we want to, we want to get that message to those who don't have special revelation because general revelation can't give it. General revelation cannot give that which is necessary for saving knowledge, saving faith, and saving obedience. In other words, you cannot look at creation and providence and learn that God is one God in three persons. You can't discern the three in one or the one in three God. You can't look at creation and learn that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate. Two natures perfectly complete and whole in one person. You can't look at nature and learn that God laid on Jesus the sins of His people and then executed Him for their sins. You can't look at creation and learn that through faith, God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. You won't learn these things by looking at the sun or the clouds or an antelope or plankton. It won't work. You can look all day long and you can learn a lot of great things, but you will not learn what is necessary for salvation. So while general, general revelation is very important because it leaves all men without an excuse before God and it provides the Christian countless specific objects for which we might praise God and meditate on His attributes, it is not enough. For the unbeliever to come to a saving knowledge of God. So there's general revelation and its deficiency. The second main heading then is special revelation and its finality. Special revelation and its finality. Here we see how the Holy Scripture, which is the substance of special revelation, adequately fills the gap left by general revelation, and it does so in such a way as it leaves no other gap in God's revelation to man. In other words, it is final. There's no need for any other revelation after God's special revelation. Under this main heading, I've got two, no, three subheadings. In this, the rest of the paragraph, we have... First, special revelation defined for us. The the, the chapter, or the paragraph here, tells us what is meant by special revelation. Notice it says, Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church. Now, this is obviously just a simple restatement of the words of Hebrews 1.1. From the King James Version, notice, God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So first, in understanding the definition of special revelation, we have to understand the manner of special revelation. How does it come? Sundry times, divers' manners. That means various times and in various ways. That means not all the time, not every day, not every moment like some seem to think that, that in the biblical time and even now God's just always whispering something in somebody's ear and we're going to go find that person hear what God's saying. The, the scriptures not only in the historical account don't, don't show that, but the scriptures very clearly says the opposite at sundry times, sometimes God would speak, and in divers manners. That means various ways. Now, how did God speak? Well, dreams, visions, handwriting on tablets, handwriting on walls, a voice from the sky theophanies and Christophanies, Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, appearing to people. God spoke through a burning bush. God spoke through a still small voice. God spoke through a spirit of a dead prophet being, being, as it were, conjured up by a witch. God can speak in any way He wants. And so, in this passage from Hebrews, which is simply reproduced in the confession, we're told very explicitly what is the manner of special revelation, sundry times and diverse manners, diverse manners, but but specifically it was God who was speaking? God spoke. Now, what is the meaning of special revelation? Again, we're trying to, to come to a definition. So we have the manner, and then we have the meaning of special revelation. What is he trying to do? First, he's revealing himself. It pleased the Lord at sundry times and divers' manners to reveal Himself. When God spoke in these various ways, He was revealing Himself. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, this is something I've been soaking in this week. Proverbs chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding... Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will be smarter than everyone around you and you'll know just what to say in a disagreement. It's not what it says. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. When we're studying the Scriptures, God is speaking and He's revealing Himself. We go to the Scriptures to learn of God. So what is the meaning of special revelation? First, God is revealing Himself. Secondly, He is declaring His will. Please the Lord at sundry times and divers manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will. As we come to know God... After that, either explicitly or by implication, we are then revealed God's will for us. This does not mean as we learn about God, He's going to tell me who I should marry or where I should go to work. This is speaking of His revealed and declared will. In His words, God tells us about Himself and He tells us how we should live in light of who He is. So He reveals Himself... He declares His will, and He does that unto His church. This is important. Unto His church. In the special revelation of God's Word, God has in primary focus His people. And here we learn that our forefathers believed in a historic or universal church made up of all believers from all times and in all places. And so as God spoke through Moses... And Moses recorded the the account of creation and the flood and the tower of Babel and the, the lineage, the lines of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he used that to teach the people of Israel. And then he told them, teach these things to your children. That was primarily for the believers or the converts in that nation. Now it would work, hopefully, to bring in and convert the rebellious and the wicked, but it was not primarily for what we might call the reprobate. The Bible is not a book for unbelievers. That's why when they get a Bible in their hand, when I say unbelievers, I, I should say reprobate. I should use the terms reprobate and elect. If, a, if a, one who is reprobate, which we can't discern that, but if they get a Bible in their hand, it's going to do them no good. It's only going to work to their condemnation. One of God's people, however, gets a Bible in their hand and it will lead them to God. So the primary purpose was to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church. So then we have our definition of special revelation. What is special revelation? It is God speaking and revealing Himself and His will to His people. Very simply... That's special revelation. Then the second thing that happens in this paragraph or that we learn or see described is special revelation recorded. Special revelation recorded. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church, there's the church again, against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing. Special revelation has been recorded. Now what is the purpose of it being recorded? To preserve the truth. That means so that we have it forever. To propagate the truth so that we can use it to teach others. And to establish the church and comfort the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world. When we have God revealed to us in His nature and character and His will declared to us as a people, we are comforted. We know what He's doing, what He's thinking, what His desires are. And so we're not thrown off course by our own flesh or the malice of Satan or the, the malice of the world coming at us because we have His Word. We know what He's doing. So we have there the purpose of the Scriptures being recorded or the special revelation being recorded. Now then we have the method of recording. Notice the phrase, "...to commit the same holy unto writing." When we read the same, the confession is speaking of the special revelation that God has deemed necessary for the stated purposes... That special revelation from God as the means to reveal Himself and His will to His people has been preserved through writing. Has there been other revelation from God that's not preserved? Yes. Do we somehow lack something because it wasn't preserved? No. What we needed, God preserved. And He preserved it through Writing. The same God committed holy unto writing. Not television, not movies, not videos, not USB uh, flash drives, not three and a half floppy disks. Writing. This is why it's so very important for those of us who say, well, I'm just not, I'm just not a reader. Sorry, if you're a Christian. You, you don't get to say, well, I'm just not. You're a new creature now. So now you, you live differently and act differently. And we have to make um, make it our intent and our purpose and our goal to read what has been preserved through writing. If he wanted it preserved a different way for different kind of people, he would have done it. And he wasn't under the impression when it was preserved in writing that there would only be people who love to read and then when when... the the rest of us were born, God was like, oh no, what are we going to do? I didn't know they were going to come along. I just assumed everybody would want to read. That's not what happened. He knew how all people would be and He preserved it through writing. And so we must be intent on reading the written Word of God. So it's been recorded. We have special revelation defined, special revelation recorded, and then by the end of the paragraph, we have special revelation required. Here in the final statement, we see what the consignatories of the confession were attempting to do in this paragraph. You you get to the end of a joke, you hear the punchline, you know what the joke is about. Here in this paragraph, you get to the end of the paragraph, you see exactly what they were trying to do. Namely, state the nature of the Holy Scripture and then defend its necessity. Notice the final words. Which maketh the holy scripture, or scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. So first, the necessity of the scriptures is stated, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary. That phrase, which maketh, refers to all that has just been said about general revelation and special revelation has proven to us that special revelation is needed if anyone is going to come to a saving knowledge of God in Christ. In other words, general revelation is great, but it's not enough. Therefore, God did more in special revelation and that makes special revelation absolutely necessary. And since God's chosen means of preservation and propagation has been the inscripturation of His special revelation, the Holy Scripture is necessary. The written down, copied, printed, dispersed Word of God is absolutely necessary if anyone is to be saved. Now that doesn't mean you have to have a copy in your hand or when you're sharing the gospel, all you can do is stand and read it to someone. But if you do not have some sort of intake and digestion of this written word and then the regurgitation of this written word, there will be no salvation. The the people in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, if they don't run into somebody who's read some of this and got it here and here and then it comes out here, they have no hope. They're not going to look at the sunshine and flee to Christ. They won't. If they don't have a copy of the Scriptures, another form, if they don't have a copy of the Scriptures translated into their language that they could then read and discern, they have no hope. There's, there's no hope for them. And we often, that, that makes us want to think, well, that's not really all that fair. No, what's not fair is we have it, and we're not doing anything with it. We don't, that, that's what's not fair. We know Their plight, we know their condition, we know what they need, and yet uh, we as God's people are so hesitant to do anything about it. So it is absolutely necessary. So the necessity stated, and then the necessity defended, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. So again, somebody might say, well, The Scriptures are not absolutely necessary because we can read in the Bible and see that God definitely spoke to people without the Scriptures before. And if He spoke to people without the Scriptures before, well, then He can obviously do it again. Well, the confession answers that. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. In other words... God doesn't reveal Himself like that anymore. Now, this would be our statement concerning the charismatic or the apostolic or revelatory sign gifts. Speaking in tongues and prophecy and words of of wisdom. There's somebody in the crowd who's got a hurt knee. That, That kind of thing. This is the, 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 Now, in former times, God, made, God did that kind of thing. There were words of wisdom that would just come into people's minds through the, the direct revelation of God, but He does not speak that way anymore. Now, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. And I'll read, read to you this full statement. Hebrews chapter 1, because when we say that, there are those who will say, well, you're putting God in a box. You're you're putting a period where God put a comma or something silly like that. And so we turn to the Scriptures and we say, well, no, we're not putting God in a box. God put Himself in that box. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now, the apostle states it very clearly here. Notice that word, but, at the beginning of verse 2. But, in other words, God used to speak one way. Yes, He did. But, now He has spoken in a different way. He doesn't do it like that anymore. And since he has spoken in this different way, he stopped speaking in the old way, you see. So the Scriptures, the Word of God themselves, tell us stop trying to hear something from God, stop looking for a sign, stop listening for something, and read the written Word. This is how he speaks. And that's that chapter. The nature of the Holy Scriptures stated, and then the nature of the Holy Scriptures Defended Now, very quickly, just some application that we could take from this. We need to take time to observe God's revelation in general revelation. Um, This is an area where I lack and where I would imagine most of us lack. Look at the creation and, and think of God. Consider His wisdom and His power and His might and His infinitude and His creativity in creation and allow what He has given us, to speak, to proclaim, to preach to us about God and meditate upon God in that way. It is the most beneficial way to study the Scriptures, yes. But does that mean we don't derive any meaningful benefit from creation? No, it doesn't. And that's why I'm not totally, completely upset if I find out men are going to be sitting in a tree stand instead of doing something else with the church. I'm cool with it because I know <laughs> I, if you'll sit in a tree stand and just think of God, I know we got our phones now. We can read scripture. We can look at creation. Use that time. It, it doesn't have to be wasted, it's not a throwaway time. And, and we should develop that. We should, I think, again, I think we lack in this area and, and we're missing out on things that we, that we could be getting from God. If we would meditate upon Him in this way, when you read the Psalms, they're littered with created order things. David had no problem looking at those types of things. Christ Himself taught. Consider the lilies. Look at the the birds. All all of these things. The, The seed on the pathway. All of these things we can learn about God. So take that time to observe God's revelation in general revelation but also, secondly, give yourself to knowing God in special revelation. Give yourself to it. There, there's no greater pursuit in this lifetime. All, everything that we do in this life comes down to this, this one pursuit. Know God and be prepared to meet God. That's it. In, in raising our children, in managing our homes, in changing diapers, in going to work, the goal in all of that is to know God. And, and the best place to learn, the most efficient place to learn of God is in special revelation. And so, read the whole Bible. Read the whole Bible a lot. When you read throughout history, these men who would read the Bible four times a year or more just over and over read the Bible a lot that doesn't mean don't study particular passages that means do both read the Bible a lot and study particular passages you say well I don't have time you don't have time not to it's gonna take us who knows how long just to preach through one book of the Bible that's just one book and I've not even done it justice it's gonna take our whole lives to give everything we have to learning of God, and even in that, we'll barely scratch the surface. So read the whole Bible. Read it a lot. Read it to know God, not to learn knowledge, just just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, not to win arguments, Not to defend five points or five solas of all that's good. We should be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. We should be ready to proclaim the gospel. But ultimately, those things flow out of knowing God. And when you you run into people who struggle with those types of doctrines and that type of, of biblical theology, if you pry, you will find... They have a deficiency in their knowledge of God. They have not understood God. When you understand God, this other stuff is just a given. It's just, (laughs) of course, of course, that's what 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 the Bible teaches. This is the only way it could be. But we should study to know God, read to know God, and and read it prayerfully. That means read before you start. Read when you get done and read and or mean pray before you start, pray before you or when you get done, and pray as you read. God illuminate this, help me to understand, give me more light in understanding what does this mean then once you once you get the meaning, God help me apply this, apply this to me, apply this to my life, apply this to to the way I work, the way I shepherd my family, the way I manage the home. Read it prayerfully. It's again, it's amazing the number of people who have faulty views of God or any scriptural theme. And then when you press them on the issue, you find out they just don't read their Bibles very much. They're not getting a whole lot of Bible. And we might not be very smart. We might not be as, as smart as, as, as most people. But if you get a lot of Bible you will learn about God. Just a few quick points here. You might say, well, I just don't understand it. Well, does that mean you stop reading it? No. Psalm 119 and verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So, well, I just don't understand it. Answer, keep reading then. Read more of it. You say, well, I just don't have time. Psalm 119, 147 and 148 says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. I just don't have time. Well, how many hours before daylight are you getting up? How many hours before day, or after daylight are you staying awake? You say, well, I just... I just have so many other things going on. It's just hard for me to get involved in the study of the Scriptures. How often have you prayed the prayer of Psalm 119.37? To God, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life according to your ways. Ask God, make me hate worthless, silly obsessions and pastimes so that all I have to do is devote attention to the Scriptures. We might say, well, I just work so much... Psalm one nineteen thirty six. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. What good is all of that money, all of that that the hours accumulated if we don't know God? It's just selfish gain. If it doesn't, if it doesn't somehow lead us to a knowledge of God that's gonna that's gonna stand for eternity and, and influence eternity, then it's it's just selfish gain. It's working for no purpose. The Word of God is the rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Everything you need is found here. If eternal life is knowing God, and God has revealed Himself in His Word, and has commanded us to run to His Word in order to know Him, then inscripturated revelation from God is absolutely necessary to know God in a saving way. That's what this first paragraph is teaching. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us a renewed zeal for your word. Lord, I know from experience that if a person will will truly ask for a desire to read your word and know your word, you will answer that prayer. And so I pray that for those of us who struggle... Not just to read and to study, but with the desire, I pray that you would put in their heart that prayer, that we would all pray, and that you would give us the desire to read and study your word so that we would first and foremost know you. Secondly, that we might have a, that we might be able to give a defense for the hope that is within us, that we would be able to proclaim the gospel that we would be able to exalt Christ, that we would be able to pray in spirit and in truth according to Your Word, that we would be able to worship in spirit and in truth according to Your Word. Lord, without Your Word, we have nothing. We can't know You in any saving, in any saving way apart from Your Word. So give us that desire. I pray that this church would be, would be known, among other things, as a church that is devoted wholeheartedly and fully and unapologetically to the written and preached Word of God. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.